Dan Sedano. You know there's no better way to start your Saturday than with my guy, Dr. Clapper, and the Weekend Warrior Show, 7 to 9 a.m. Saturday mornings. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. Sometimes you can call me Smokey. Sometimes you can call me Rocky. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. Today I want to be Tito, Dr. Tito Clapper. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. Thank you, Elton John. But I don't want to talk to Elton John. I want to talk to this man right now. One of the greatest influences in my life, and I cannot believe he's the guest, but I'm so over the moon. The great Mark Spitz. Mark, thank you so much for being with us this morning. My pleasure. Oh, God. Can I play you a soundbite of Duke Kahanamoku's sister? And I just want... Michelangelo's dead 500 years. I can't talk to him, but I can talk to you. I want you to tell me what you think when you hear Bernice, the sister of Duke Kahanamoku, talking about how Duke Kahanamoku, also an Olympic champion, learned how to swim. Must have been wonderful being raised on an island paradise, Duke. Uh, What was Duke's childhood like, Bernice? Well... Brother Duke's childhood days were spent in the water uh-huh. and on the beach. But my father taught him how the old-fashioned method to swim when he was only four years old. What was your dad's uh, method of teaching you, Duke? Well, uh, that's a long story. Yeah. <laughs> what was I saying? But he did it. <laughs> he threw you uh, kind of over the outrigger canoe. Over the, between... over the canoe between the two outriggers. You know, I was splashing all over the place. Save yourself or drown. Are you kidding me? What does that sound like to you, Mark Spitz? I don't know. It sounds like a program that was called This Is Your Life. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen that program. (laughs) Yeah, those were pretty amazing programs in black and white. Yes. I never met met Duke Kanemoko, but I did meet Johnny Weissmiller. You did? He was actually in the stands sitting about... A row and a, I guess a row or two in front of my parents, oh who my were seated God. with Kirk Douglas, ah! watching watching me swim in Munich. Oh my! As a matter of fact, in my sixth race, which was the hundred meter freestyle, um, as I was walking out, paraded out with the other seven athletes because there were eight lanes, mm-hmm. I heard this voice: "Go, Mark! Go, Mark! <laughs> this is Johnny." <laughs> and I looked over and I was going, "Oh my gosh!" It's Tarzan. <laughs> Listen, I have a soundbite. Listen to this one. This is Johnny Weissmuller with Duke Ahanamoku on that very show. Listen to this. Duke actually helped you to beat him, didn't he, Johnny? Yes, he did. You know, we trained together in the Olympic Games. Yes. And this big lug, he just gave me all the confidence in the world. Well, this is a thrill to see you <laughs> yeah, two together, the guy who finally broke his record. Even though he had a feeling that you were going to beat him, he helped you? Well, sure. He used to watch me train and take care of me. He made me so, made me go back and get in that pool and work up and down. He was just like a big brother to the boys. He gave me the work out. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, funny thing, he never he never worried much about himself. All he wanted to do was be sure that the United States got that one, two, three in the That's Olympic right. game. That's Johnny Weissmuller. Is that amazing? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I'm, I can't believe right now. I'm listening to Johnny Weissmuller, Duke Kahanamoku, and I'm talking to Mark Spitz. Okay, I, like tomorrow, I put me in a coffin, you can bury me. It's just been an unbelievable life. 
What's most fascinating of the many things, and again, I can't thank you enough for you never even knowing me. I still haven't shaken your hand. I've just spoken to you. But as a Jewish guy growing up in New York, about a million miles away from you, how much you influenced me and so many people, not about swimming, even though I swam on my high school team wearing your Speedo designed, you know, trunks, but the fact that you did so much meant I, why can't I do so much also? And it's just such a beautiful story. And here's Duke Hanamoku doing the ultimate aloha spirit with Johnny Weissmuller, just doing good for goodness sake, inspiring people. Mark Spitz, that's what you've done to so many of us. Uh, And so on behalf of all of us, thank you for everything that you did. I mean, maybe you don't hear it enough. You hear it too much. I'm just telling you thank you. But I'd like to ask you a few questions if you don't mind. Sure. You talk about going to Indiana instead of going to Stanford to follow this coach, councilman. Teach us. what, And you say you became a better swimmer because he was your coach instead of the Stanford coach where you initially wanted to go. Like God had a mysterious path for you that led you to Indiana. What exactly does a great swimming coach teach a swimmer like you that made you, who was already great, even better? Well, I think um, that's a very interesting question, and it has quite a lengthy answer. But the short take your time. uh, No, the short the short answer is is that he was a great motivator, and he made he made everybody that he came in contact with feel that they were the most special person on the team. It didn't matter whether or not you came to university as a world record holder, or he was still developing your skills. Although at the level of getting uh, collegiate swimming, I mean, you had to be pretty good because everybody was there under scholarship, so you just couldn't actually, you know, work out your craft for four years while you were there. There were really no, to speak of, walk-ons. So, um, you know, he, he was very interested in us as, uh, as athletes, but he also was very interested in us as human beings hmm. and, and perfecting our skills uh, intellectually hmm. so that we were there academically to also complete four years of college and hopefully have a degree. Hmm. As a matter of fact, I was just on a, uh, on a blog for about an hour a day for eight straight days while we just got through with our Olympic swim trials hmm. that were in uh, Omaha, Nebraska. Mm-hmm. And there was this big conversation, and it's been pretty, pretty up there in the front pages about mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we've seen it in tennis. We've seen it in a lot of different sports where some of these athletes have, have, have had these breakdowns are these these issues that they've had a i guess a a problem with trying to sort out where they're going and what they're doing mm-hmm. I think a lot of it has to do with public adulation but part of the problem is is that a lot of athletes who go through college and I only speak uh, about college sports um there's so much emphasis on being great and being recruited into a becoming a professional mm-hmm. and that's perfectly fine. In some sports, you may have some longevity, like golf. You can play into your 40s or 50s, but certainly swimming or track and field, that's not going to happen, and including mm-hmm. basketball or even football, for that matter. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, you know, is there some sort of a skill set that you've learned in college that you could fall back on? Mm-hmm. And the answer is probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody thinks that far in advance, or anybody that's within their team or in their environment has encouraged them to 
to develop those skills. Hmm. They're only interested in their self-serving ways to make sure that that athlete stays in that sport and continues to be in their winning ways and make money because that's perhaps maybe their meal ticket. And it's as selfish as that may seem, it seems to boil down to something like that. Hmm. So a lot of these uh, uh, you know, young men and women uh, have, have failed to prepare for something in the future. And I think that's part of the reason that they have a difficult time trying to muster up, you know, uh, feeling comfortable and confident and, and having these uh, these lapses of feeling sorry for themselves. Mm. I mean, we've seen this with some of the top swimmers in the world that have a tremendous amount of money, mm. um, and yet they find themselves wallowing uh, and, and not feeling confident about what's happening in their life. Mm. And part of that is because they fail to prepare for something that is more meaningful or as meaningful, perhaps, mm. uh, and, and having an education and a skill set so that they can feel confident and, comfort and, and I guess, uh, and, and trying to uh, be competitive and, and finding a job other than what it was when they were an athlete. Mm. I'm talking to the great Mark Spitz. i got to thank David Rosen a million times for making this all happen. You're the father of two sons, um, so you can speak as a parent as well. When we talk about Tiger Woods and his dad teaching him all about golf, but what made him the champion that he was, and I'm not looking into his entire life, just as his golf life, but people don't give enough credit to his mom giving him the mental toughness. So I want to know, what is it that your mom and dad said to you that gave you the mental toughness? You obviously had the physical capabilities, but was there anything in particular that your dad or your mom said to you that that gave you that mental toughness? Um, you know, first of all, they they weren't, and we weren't very wealthy as a family. So, but he did provide, you know, for a great home. Mm-hmm. And my mom drove me to practice all the time because I couldn't drive when I was ten, eleven, twelve when mm-hmm. I first started off as an age group swimmer. I think that. Um, uh, he certainly pointed out some facts that may have not been as apparent to when you're nine or 10 years old that, you know, he used to ask me, and in those days we only had six lane pools. He said, how many people are in the pool, Mark? And I'd say, well, there's six, Dad. And he'd go, well, how many people win? I go, well, I think there's just one winner. He says, yep, and you can win from any lane. Just get to the finals. Wow. Things like that, you know. Wow. Um, and uh, just a little bit of a perspective. And I find them to, uh, and found them to be humorous, to be honest with you. My mom was my greatest advocate. Wow. I think she fended off my, my father being too, uh, having maybe too much pressure on me. I think part of that pressure actually came from the fact that I think as I started to become more successful as an athlete, I think I took it upon myself to expect more for myself. But I think that's a natural instinct that if, you know, misery loves company. And if the company is that I'm always on the award stand and getting first place, I don't want to relinquish that. (laughs) So therefore, there's a lot of hard work to get there all the time. And I remember the first world record that I ever broke. My coach, um, his name was George Haynes. He was also the coach of the guy I broke the world record from, which his name was Don Scholander, the 400-meter freestyle. And I remember him whispering in my ear, and he said, you know, the world will know what you did on Monday morning. You just went from the hunter to the hunted. Let's see what you can do. And there's a whole different transition when that happens wow. because, you know, we weren't born with a world record certificate, you know, with, mm-hmm. and we have to basically train and, and have a vision. And I think that my parents gave me that vision 
um, as it developed in front of all of us as a family. I certainly wasn't thinking about going to the Olympic Games when I was 14 years old. Hmm. But when I was 15 years old, I was swimming on a team with a guy who had just come back from the Tokyo Olympic Games in 1964, had had won four gold medals in swimming, and his name was Don Scholander. And I was then swimming right next to him in the lane Hmm. uh, at practice. And so my vision of where the world was and where I thought I wanted to be was in the swimming pool every day. Hmm. And that, that, that my parents provided for me with that. That's just, you know, they talk about Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant. The rest of us, not you, the rest of us think about motivation in winning. But in the case of Kobe and Michael Jordan, they say, it's that they actually hated to lose more than they loved to win. And it almost sounds like that's what motivated you as well. You didn't want to relinquish it. You were not, the losing just tasted so bad uh, in a sport where there isn't a team. It's really just you in the pool. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that because I've been asked, obviously, over the last 48 years since I won, or now I guess it's 49 years since 1972, my seven gold medals in Munich, Germany. Mm-hmm. I've always said it wasn't so much about the winning. I just despised losing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, made it a, I made it a point to think about internally for myself that I was more interested in what those people that I was competing against came to the swimming pool of who was going to decide who was going to become first to finish second place. And I decided that when I left my hotel room to go to either the finals or I left to go to practice or whatever it was, I I made a determination that I wanted to come back as a winner. Somebody had to come back as a winner, and I just said, I've got to put myself in that position. So we didn't even have a thing in those days called visualization. But I was visualizing that it it had to be me and nobody else. And I made it a point that at competition, uh, it's too late to worry about did you train hard enough. It's basically you have to screw your head on and say this is about a 90% battle in my mind. My body will follow if my mind can basically take me in that direction. And there are so many people that had they felt the same way that I felt, I probably wouldn't have been on the winner's stand as often. And I think it's the same thing with with Tiger Woods um, and, and people that are very consistent at what they're doing. And I, I, I sort of analyzed uh, quantitatively that I really wasn't that much better than anybody, maybe three or 4%. And I think that if you look at Tiger Woods or um, Michael Jordan, they're two or 3% better, but we all made the point to always be that two or 3% mm-hmm. better. Every mm-hmm. time we actually took the, either the court or dove into the swimming pool or whatever the sport might be. And and the illusion that we were that much greater was because that's what we had a skill set at doing. Mm. Not having an excuse that on that particular day, if we woke up, we didn't feel that good. We made it a point to have to feel that good, and mm. we figured out how to get there to the finish line. I believe that your gifts, and I'm a sculptor, so Michelangelo is he because i can see his chisel marks in his unfinished works it's as though he taps me on the shoulder and says robbie move the chisel vertical not horizontal to make this cheekbone uh in this marble it's just uh, it's an awesome thing and i just love that you talk about you were bestowed natural incredible gifts physically but i got to tell you mark spitz the thing that fascinates me the most about you, for that 2%, 3% you're talking about, is your gifts in psychological warfare. 
And I, what I mean by that is I'm on this Fakakta swimming team in New York, the Farakway High School swimming team, idolizing you with my Speedo Mark Spitz shorts. But all the while, what I'm appreciating is my teammates shaving themselves, doing with oils, all kinds of crazy things to be faster. Can you imagine being any of those other swimmers from Russia or wherever they were that were going up against you? And you have a mustache. You have this beautiful black hair because you liked the way it looked. But psychologically, can you imagine what that must have done to your competitors going, I'm so good. I'm going to actually have extra resistance in the water by having my hair and my mustache. It must have been an unbelievable psychological power that you did unknowingly with this incredible benefit. <laughs> you know, the story about the mustache is funny. Um, you have to go back to uh, 1972, and my coach always wanted all of his athletes at college to look like the clean-cut, right? you know, collegiate All-American boy. And he said, no, you can't have facial hair. Of course, there was never thought of that anybody would have a goatee or a mustache. But if you think about the musical groups, they all had long hair. The Rolling Stones, the Beatles, everybody. Um, and I just was out of spite when I finished my senior year in 1972. I go, well, I don't have to listen to him anymore. When I'm graduating, I'm going to grow this mustache. And it took forever to come in. So I was so proud of this thing after cultivating the thing literally for about three or four months. We went to the Olympic trials in Chicago, and everybody was talking about my mustache. And I realized that if they're talking about my mustache, they're not thinking about how to beat me. So I figured, you know, I might as well keep this thing yeah, and see how it goes. Exactly. And I broke three world records and tied one of my world records in the four individual events that I was going to compete in in mm. Munich about a month later. And I said, well, it worked for me at the Olympic trials. I'll keep it. But on the mm. day before swimming started in Munich, oh. we had already run through our allocated time at swimming at the venue. Mm. Uh, they had uh, there's so many different countries that we didn't have enough time to actually practice in the actual real pool that we swam in. So there were a lot of other pools in the city that we could practice in. But I wanted to go there at exactly the evening hours, which our practice times were always in the daytime, mm. to see what the ambient light was like. And there was a Russian team there that was the last group that would be using the pool. Mm -hmm. So I knew a couple of the coaches, and I walked from the village about 15 minutes over to the pool, and I said, can I swim for about 10 minutes? And they said, sure, well, if you can wait a few minutes, I'm going to clear out lane number one for you. And I said, okay, fine. And I was swimming in lane number one, and I noticed that half the coaching staff had actually left. And they were somewhere, but I couldn't figure it out. Um, and all of a sudden, I was looking at these flash bulbs. Um, the, at the end of the pool, there were two big underwater windows so that the television cameras could get the turns. And I realized that half their coaching staff were down there taking pictures of me. So I did this stupid stroke. I mean, just crazy stroke when I got in the view of the windows, figuring I'll throw them off at the scent, you know, of how I swim. So as I finished after this 15-minute session, I came back up. The true story. And they said... You know, my colleagues have never seen you swim personally, but we noticed underwater you have a very interesting stroke. You always <laughs> swim like that. And I, I said, yes, I do. And, of course, he translated that very that very words in, in Russian to them. And they said, well, we have another question. You've got this mustache. Doesn't it slow you down? I go, and I, by the way, I was going back from that particular training session to go shave this mustache off for the ultimate psych for myself. Right. And, they, and I said, no, it doesn't slow me down. 
He said, how could that possibly be? I said, well, you see this mustache, it deflects the water <laughs> away from my mouth. It allows my head to get much lower and my behind to come up and I'm more streamlined. As a matter of fact, it really worked four weeks earlier at the Olympic trials where I broke three world records and that's the reason why I'm going to keep this mustache. And I left that training session saying to myself, you are an idiot if you want to go and shave this thing off. I mean, this is working perfectly. I didn't even realize it, that you were getting everybody so far off track. <laughs> Well, guess what? Obviously, I went and swam with the Olympic Games with this mustache, and the following year, every Russian male swimmer had a mustache. <laughs> that is... And, and guess what? The guy that got second to me, uh, excuse me, the guy that got third, uh, the bronze medal in yeah. the 100-meter freestyle, was Vladimir Bure, mm -hmm. and his son, because he wasn't, didn't have a son and wasn't married at that time, he gets married, has a son named Pavel Bure, which is one of the greatest hockey players just behind Wayne Gretzky. So you can imagine, <laughs> eventually, one day um, at the at the Kings uh, uh, hockey game, mm -hmm. and they were playing uh, Canucks or whatever where he was on, and I'd never met him before, and there was a special arrangement that I could go back after the game and meet him. And Pavel Bure came up to me, and he says, I hate you. He says, I know who you are, and I hate you. I said, why is that? He says, because... <laughs> You're the reason that I'm a great hockey player because my father wanted me to go in the swimming pool and I decided to take it so that it was frozen water rather than liquid water. And I go, I said to him, I said, say hello to Vladimir for me, <laughs> which is his father's name. And, and, and so, you see, things happen. I got a lot of stories like that. I know. I could talk to you for hours and I really would love to. I, got, I probably have time for one more question. Even though I, I would love, this is like a million things I wrote down here and I just didn't even get to any of them. The focus, obviously, of the seven gold medals in 72 and the seven world records in, the, in that moment, which was just unbelievable. Tell me, in 1968 in Mexico City, when you had the bronze medal and even finished last in one of the races... Here again, this is Michael Jordan getting cut by his high school basketball team. You almost need a chip on your shoulder. Was that a chip on your shoulder? Of course. Uh, in 1968, I was 18 years old. Nobody had actually gone to the Olympics and tried to compete in as many events as I had. Mm -hmm. I had not the experience of trying to do that mm -hmm. um, all in the same competition. It's one thing to have a world record and do it at one particular meet and do a different event in another uh, but to package them all and try to do them under the same time frame was a little difficult. So in two of the events that I held the world record in, uh, I got second place in one of them. As a matter of fact, I only lost this event once in what happened to be at the Olympic Games, a big event, obviously. It was the 100-meter butterfly, and it put that person, his name was Doug Russell, on the Olympic uh, medley relay team, and I failed to get a gold medal there because he was faster, and therefore he had the privilege of swimming the butterfly leg in the medley relay. And uh, I was the world record holder in the 200-meter butterfly, qualified first. I think if I had gone a second slower in the finals, I would have won, but I went even better than that. I went about six seconds slower, and I got dead last, eighth. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't you know it, that it was the inspiration of why I would continue swimming for another four years and do what I did in Munich mm -hmm. and winning the seven gold medals. And the very first race of those Olympic Games was the 200-meter butterfly, the event that I got dead last in in the finals. And I said, boy, I better get off to a good start. It, ironically, of the four individual events was the event that I hated the most because it was the most difficult to get through, and it wasn't an easy event. But it was also an event that I had almost a three-second lead over the field, so I didn't really 
have to be as sharp for the first event, mm-hmm. but I had to get through that event, obviously, mm-hmm. and I did. Mark and so that's what that's what that's what I took away from Mexico City. That you know, it's not it's not that you're going to fall down; it's how well you get up. All the red lights are going off because I'm going too long, but I could care less. I'll have to figure out how to do the rest of it. I I just have a last question for you. You're you're my hero. You are. And you're the hero of so many people quietly behind me. Who do you, other than your mom and your dad, tell me, is there someone that was a hero to you? Who is Mark Spitz's mentor, hero, someone that he admired? In any field, and I that includes art, sports, education. Is there someone's teachings that really touch you? I think that I, I don't think as a kid I had too many heroes, but in my focus of swimming, when I realized that I had a talent, I was swimming next to somebody that really could have been considered a hero, even though I would have never admitted it at the time, which is this guy. And I mentioned this is in the show already. His name was Don Scholander. Mm-hmm. He was the pinnacle of our sport, winning four gold medals like Jesse Owens, you know, and mm-hmm. the Olympic Games in Berlin for track and field in the 30s. I mean, he was like the gold standard. He was the holy grail of swimming. Um, and I learned a lot from him by observing. Um, was he a nice guy? Then, Did you course, talk I, to him? I, I surpassed him. Yeah, well, that's the thing. You now, you're, you're on an island, Mark Spitz. Literally, not Hawaii. You're on the Mark Spitz Island when you surpass your hero. But I think that's really what it's all about. I can't ask Michelangelo who his hero is. Maybe it was Phidias, the sculptor for the Greeks. But in the end, it's a lonely place sometimes to be your own hero, but in order to become... I, I think I think the bottom line is there's a commonality of somebody that, that uh, is yeah. consistently always up there in the front, um, right. and you consider, or the public considers them as being great, and that mm-hmm. was is that our legacy or the things that we had done in our athletic career uh, become a matter of measure, mm-hmm. which others may judge themselves by, and, and that is the greatest legacy that we can leave on our sport, that somebody was inspired by something that we may have accomplished, yeah. Yeah. and they then set themselves up to want to achieve those similar goals. Um, and, and that's the impact that we can have on what we have meant to the sport. And, and for that, I take solace and, and comfort to know that somebody like a Michael Phelps 36 years later broke my record and right. that I was alive to even witness it. Right. It's just a testament that... I could understand how good I was when somebody else broke my record. Well, I want you to know something outside of swimming. I got motivated to go to Columbia to train at the Hospital for Special Surgery to be the best orthopedic surgeon. And those patients yesterday in surgery, they benefit from the skill set that I got. But even though you're a swimmer and I'm an orthopedic surgeon, you also inspired me to be the best at what I could be as an orthopedic surgeon, even though it's not swimming. And that, to me, is the, your ultimate legacy. And I can't thank you enough. And thank you for getting up. Early. I mean, I don't know what to do. I better not check my blood pressure because I, I'm verklempt right now talking to you. You're, you're just the greatest, Mark Spitz. And thank you so much for making the time. And now everyone can appreciate how beautiful the journey has been for you and how you did it from within. And you do it with class and with professionalism. You represent all of us the greatest. So thank you once again, Mark. Well, thank you for having me on there. And if the takeaway from this interview is, is it's never too late to be the person you thought you could be. And it starts right from this yeah. moment on. Right, right.
Yeah, we'll, we'll remember that. I can't wait to meet you in person one day. Have a great Saturday with your family. Talk soon. Thank you. Okay, that's the great Mark Spitz. Okay, now, Steve Paulette, we need a commercial because I have to calm down because that was unbelievable. Weekend Warriors, I hope you enjoyed it. The number is 877-710-ESPN. You're now listening to Dr. Clapper and probably the happiest he's ever been in 10 and a half years on this station. Wow. Coming up next, I'll take your calls. 877-710-ESPN. And I got to tell you where those cherry peppers come from. Holy emoji, Clapman. Weekend Warriors on Facebook. Holy slip disc. That's right, Robin. Hear listeners talk about their aches and pains. Holy hamstrings. Along with Doc's Clapper vision. Breathe deeply. And advice to callers. On your toes, Robin. So like, follow, and enjoy. A wise decision. The Weekend Warrior Facebook page. Frankly, I can think of nothing more stimulating. Hi, friends. It's Vin Scully. It's time for Dr. Clapper. In sports, there's winning and losing and getting injured. That's why there's Dr. Clapper. Dr. Clapper is the former head of orthopedic surgery at Cedar sinai The Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper, presented by Cedar sinai Hey, Dr. Clapper. How are you? Saturday mornings from 7 to 9. Silence is golden when you can't think of a good answer. <laughs> yes, Doc, I love your show. Now, here he is, Dr. Robert Clapper. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. What a treat. Before the Laker game starts, sitting in the studio with me is the great Michael Thompson. Without a doubt, my favorite basketball player. Sure, right. Because we're joined at the hip. Yeah, yeah, well, that's true. But I think you had other favorites like Will Chamberlain. There's yeah, that's picture true. You had that's Wilt true. up in your office. That's right. Yes. It's awesome to, to learn about the game from professional athletes that – there's a level of it that you don't really appreciate as a fan that you can only learn. It's it's hilarious. I if I ask you, Michael, what you ate for breakfast yesterday, you you might have trouble telling me. Mm-hmm. But if I asked you about 25 years ago, third quarter, three seconds to go, you're gonna remember exactly yeah. what everybody wore, what they were playing, what they did, and it's amazing the memory that a professional. Yeah, athlete has. That's true, but you as, as great as it is to remember all the victories, you remember the losses more. Yes. Because they hurt more than it feels good to win. And I, Mike Singletary said it best. I mean, this is the best quote I've ever heard about uh, an athlete and what the game meant to him and uh, what it felt to play. And he said, to ask him what was the thing he was most grateful for, and Singletary won a Super Bowl, of course, played with those great Chicago, that great Chicago Bear team, as some people think was the greatest team of all time, if not the greatest defense of all time. And he simply said, and it's true, and it made me think about it too. And I always kind of felt this way, but I didn't say it as, as um, eloquently. Pr- eloquently as he said. And I said, Mike, what's the best thing about playing professional sport, about being an athlete? He said, you know what? The opportunity to play. That means God has blessed you with a body healthy enough to play, You've been blessed with skills healthy enough to play. And that's in any sport. You don't have to be a pro athlete. You can be a high school player, boy or girl, but yet you have a body that's healthy enough to go out there and compete. Because there are so many people in this world who have, as you, as you know, have, uh, have uh, illnesses that can't, uh, don't have healthy bodies. And we take for granted sometimes when we're healthy. 
Right. And um, I remember after you gave me my hip replacement and for a few weeks, you know, it takes time to recover. Yep. Just to be able to get out of bed on your own. Yeah. Just to be able to sit on the toilet without any right. difficulties. Just to be able to go up and down stairs. I couldn't go upstairs in my house for a month because I wasn't allowed to. Just the fact to be able to climb stairs freely. You just take things, the, the ability to move. Yes. We take it for granted. And we just and it reminds you to be so thankful that you have a healthy body that you could just do natural, normal things. Well, this brings me to the soundbite I'd like you to listen to. And again, you're allowed to be politically correct. And I'm not interested in throwing anybody under the bus. But I heard this on the morning show with Keyshawn Johnson, Mike Greenberg going on a rant. Because clearly, there's a Laker game today. There's two more games to go. But you do have to think about the standing for the playoffs. It's all about winning a ring. So listen to this Mike Greenberg rant uh, about LeBron James. Nothing is more important than playing a game. You have a game. Don't tell me to care about your games if you're telling me you don't. Don't tell me I should get excited about these games if you're telling me you don't. You're not excited. It's more important to raise the banner. Anyone can raise the banner. We came to watch a game. We came to watch you play. You're the best player. Now, again, I don't like doing this when it comes to LeBron because LeBron traditionally has not load managed. But at the end of the day, it is just a perfect microcosm of what has gone wrong here. The players have decided the regular season doesn't matter. To me, it's not fair to... I appreciate being able to ask the tough questions. I mean, I guess you could ask LeBron, is this really about pain and and you just don't feel 100% or is it the fact that it's better for us to not play the clippers right away you know what i mean it's i agree with him but then i don't agree with him no i agree with him not on lebron's case cuz lebron is coming off an injury and Correct. maybe he's not 100% so we got to trust him cuz lebron's a gamer right he, he's a competitor he does play he doesn't miss games right and if he says he's not ready you got to take him at his word Correct. i have no problems with that he's and, earned that yeah but I get upset when guys are perfectly healthy and they go, ah, I'll take the night off when you're a star. If you're a role player, I don't care. But when you are the face of a franchise or the all-star in that team, the legend of that team, you need to play. Kobe Bryant had that attitude. Michael Jordan had that because they understood they had a responsibility. People are paying. Yeah, I know it says Chicago Bulls on the jersey. I know it says New York Knicks. But when I go to a game, I'm going to watch Patrick Ewing. I'm going to see Michael Jordan. I'm going to see Kobe Bryant. Yeah, I know the other guys on the team, too, and I want to see them. But the main reason why I'm taking my kids to that game and spending a 1000 bucks or $500 or 300 bucks or whatever is I want to see that star play. That's the way I feel about baseball, too, when the stars decide, oh, I'll take the day off. I don't feel like playing today. I just need to rest. No, you got to understand, superstar, people are paying to come see you, and this may be their only time to be able to see you because this is all I can afford. I remember one time I was going to Dodger Stadium, because my son wanted to see Ken Griffey play. That's he, uh, Trace, he was about 13, 14, and he wanted to see Ken Griffey. That's the reason why I went to the game. I drove all the way up there to go take him to see Ken Griffey play. Not the Cincinnati Reds. He wanted to see Ken Griffey. And sure enough, we were there early, and we were waiting, 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 and we never saw Ken Griffey. Didn't oh. come, no, he didn't come off a pregame, didn't come off for nothing. And I'm sitting there going, I cannot believe we waited, we waited all this time to come up here to see Ken Griffey play. This is my son's idol, and he's not going to play today. This is the only chance he's going to see him, you know, for this season anyway. But sure enough, as soon as the uh, when the uh, batting lineups came out, Ken Griffey's name was in the lineup. I went, thank God. Can you imagine if he didn't play? <laughs> that's, that's how you have to think as a star. Yeah. This, people are coming to see you. 
Now, LeBron's case, he's a bit hurt, so he needs to wait until he's 100%. So Mike Greenberg's wrong this time about LeBron. But LeBron, when he's healthy, doesn't really take – only if he's beat up or sore, he needs to take a day off. Now, some guys are rare. Kobe never took a night off, as we know, unless right. he tore something or, right. or, or broke something. Right. He didn't care how sore and tired he was, he was playing. Michael right. Jordan had the same – Magic Johnson had the same attitude, too. Some guys are like that. Some guys prefer, uh, I think I'll just – 82-game schedule, I'll play in 70 of them. Uh, that's wrong if you're healthy. So you sat down in the studio with me, and I'm so delighted to have you here in front of me. And the first thing you said is how the wins are great for a professional athlete, but it's the losses that stick with you. And as a surgeon, yes, 16,000 people running around, great. I remember the inside of every single one of them because, trust me, the artery, the nerve is never exactly where it's supposed to be, and I remember those moments. So I want to ask you, that drive that we see in Michael Jordan, that we see in Kobe, in Michael Jordan and in his Hall of Fame speech, when he actually has the chutzpah, the Yiddish term, to bring his high school coach who cut him from the high school team to tell him, I bet you're wondering why you're here, to, why you're here today. In the case of Kobe Bryant, we never hear much about his dad. Jelly Bean Bryant. We know this, that he grew up in Italy because, obviously, his dad was not playing in the NBA. Do you think that that is the being cut from the high school team part of Kobe Bryant that fired him up, that how privileged it is to be in the NBA? Do you think that comes from watching his father play in Europe? Oh, yeah, no, no, no doubt about it. He grew up around the game. He developed a passion for the game quickly. That happens in a lot of these young players' games, uh, players' athletes, whether it's in baseball, football, whatever sport they are, following their father's footsteps. They grew up in the game, and they learned about it at an early age and obviously were introduced to it, and they got a passion for it. Now, sometimes that doesn't work. Look at Michael Jordan's kids. They tried, but they weren't both of them, Jeffrey Jordan and the other one, I forget his name, they both played high school b- basketball and played uh, sparely or a little bit in college but you know and they they liked the game but they didn't have to the, the talent or the drive to stick with it to try to make it to the NBA and following it following their father's footsteps but it is an advantage when you have a parent I guess in any business whether even if parents are a doctor in the medical field you say I want to be like dad or mom right. and that's sometimes you see children following their parents in the medical field so that's that's all part of the influence of being a, a child of an athlete do you think then the road for Clay Thompson, your son, was that much more difficult because he was being compared to you? What what drove Clay to such heights? I think it's easier. It could be a little bit hard too because they compare the kids to their fathers, especially if their fathers are legends. Right. You know, Jeffrey Jordan was compared to Michael. Uh, I'm sure Bronny James are going to be is going to be compared to his dad, even though Bronny's a good player in his own right. So in that way, it could be difficult being mm-hmm. compared to your father. But Clay has exceeded my career a million fold, infinity fold. So he doesn't have to worry about being compared to me. I need to be compared to him. <laughs> but uh, it, but then again, it makes it easier for kids, boys or girls, to maybe get to a certain level because they're around their parents who can show them the right way, and also other legends. Right. They don't have Clay didn't have to listen to me. He could go talk, get advice from Kobe, which he did. He could get advice from Clyde Drexler, which he did. He got advice from Rasheed Wallace, who's a was was a great player, which he did. He was around those kind of guys, so he didn't always have to hear it from me saying, "Do this, do that," because he had legends telling mm-hmm. him, "Do this, do that." And so he took, he, so he listened to, he probably listened to them more than me. 
how appreciative I can only imagine you must be of the moments that Clay got to spend with Kobe. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I was so grateful. Kobe was like that with all the young players, not just Clay because he was my son. He was like that with with obscure or anonymous players, taking time to speak to them, to advise them about the game, to give them, advi- to give them advice and tips. But he definitely did that for Clay. Treated him uh, with a lot of respect when Clay was a little high schooler trying to find his way. Clay was he was Clay's idol, so for Clay to be around him, be able to work out with him over at uh, UC Irvine, that's where Kobe used to go work out. And sometimes Clay would be in the gym, and Kobe would be in there with him. One time he came, hey dad, hey dad, guess what? Guess what? Guess what? I said what? <laughs> Man, me and Kobe worked out today. I said you actually saw Kobe, and you guys see he worked out with? Yes, and we. Pro-. He was so excited to tell me that. I was like, I think he got more enjoyment out of that than winning a championship. Wow. One day I had the, the real privilege of interviewing Gary Vitti, who I know very well, oh, yeah. as a guest on this show. And One I, time I asked Gary Vitti. I yep. said, Vitti, because he's been around the Lakers for 30 years. That's right. From Magic and Kareem, he's been around all the legends. Right. A.C. Green, who right. never missed a game. <laughs> Played through all kinds of Thanks injuries, right? Thanks to Gary Vitti. And I said, Vitti, I said, Gary, who's the toughest Laker you've ever been around? You know, like mental toughness, physical toughness. And without hesitation, he said, I thought he would say Magic. I thought he would say Kareem. Without hesitation, said Kobe. Wow. I asked him, you've been around the game forever. You're a legend, Gary Vitti. What's the one thing that you, as if you can put it into one thing, what's the one thing that you can say about professional athletes that's impressed you the most? And he said, he, th- he stopped. You know, he was like a meteorologist. He was going to be, he wasn't going to even be a trainer. So he has depth. Is, is why I'm mentioning that. He has depth, and the answer was beautiful. He said the most overrated thing in professional sports is talent. Talent. He said, I've, I've met athletes that could jump out of the gym. Uh-huh. They go nowhere. The most important thing that I see is focus. Yeah, mental toughness. Where does that come from? And that that is actually the intangible. So you wonder, getting... Is it a blessing to be cut by your high school basketball team where most people say, that's it, I'm never going to play basketball, I'm mad at the coach? No, we all get thrown off the horse. It's, it's the successful people that learn how to get back up. So was it Kobe watching his dad have to play in Italy and not in the NBA that made him appreciate the journey that much more? Yeah, you know one of the reasons why I wanted Clay to be a Laker so bad because Clay grew up um – pulling for the Lakers, and of course Kobe was his guy, and why I wanted him to play for the Lakers. I wanted Gary Vitti to be the first trainer in history to be the trainer of mother, father, and son. He was my wife's trainer at the University of Portland. Wow. How about that? Oh. Before, before he took the Laker job. I did that? not know that. Isn't that weird? Because <laughs> so she, she played volleyball in Portland, and he was the trainer of the volleyball team. <laughs> Isn't that weird? So I was hoping Clay could be a Laker so he could have like the father, son, father, mother, and son be trainer of. That would have been kind of cool. Kind of like a nice tri- trilogy. Well, they just announced yesterday, I saw on Twitter, that LeBron James has renewed, extended his contract for another two years. With who? With the Lakers. Really? Yes. When did that happen? Yesterday. I saw it on Twitter. How come I didn't uh, see it on hoops, hype, and all that stuff? I'm uh, always on these uh, basketball updates. I think sites. it was a Dave McMenamin. I, I, maybe I'm giving the wrong person credit, but I, I love Dave wow. McMenamin, and I think he he's the one who announced it. And you know what I immediately thought of in the line of thinking that you're mentioning? Oh, my God. That means Bronny James. Uh-huh. 
can play in the same – you talk about Gary Vitti taking care of the mother, the right. father, the son. We may be seeing the first time in NBA history where a father and a son are in the same backcourt. Well, that oh, is yeah. – LeBron said that's one of his goals. That would be probably his greatest accomplishment. He said that to, to play on a team with his son. Now, how, for that to work – if Le- this will take LeBron up to what age thirty eight or nine, maybe thirty. LeBron's thirty six now, right? He's gonna be thirty seven next year, so up to thirty nine. So that means for Bronny, for that to work, for his goal to be accomplished, because if I guess Bronny's good enough to play in the NBA, people are projecting him out to be an NBA draft pick. He's that good. Hmm. That means they'll have to work out some kind of deal with the rest of the league. Say, don't draft this kid. He's got to come play with his dad, I guess, because some other team might draft him. Wow. And if LeBron's under contract with the Lakers, he, you know, then it won't be able to work. But I don't know. Maybe LeBron's going to play till he's 40 or 41 like Tom Brady. <laughs> Listen, if anybody can do it, it's LeBron James. Yeah, maybe you're right with you that know? body of his, the way he takes care of himself. And uh, I'm not going to call it load management because when it's LeBron, I disagree with Greenberg. It's you got to give him. He deserves our respect of not being that guy. And when you're coming off of an injury, yes, you can't really question it. Yeah, I exactly. only question it when I know a guy's fully healthy, he's not hurt, and he's taking a night off. But if a guy's coming off an injury, you got to wait till he says he's ready. Do you remember Barbara Walters? Well, how young do you think I am? Of course. Barbara I know Walters exactly Hugh, how old you are. Barbara Walters, Hugh Downs on 2020 That's every exactly Thursday night. Right. Of course. All right. I can't wait to talk to you about that. All right. We're going to take a break. We'll pay some bills. We're talking to the great Michael Thompson, the legend. And again, I know a lot about the hip, but not the hop. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warriors show here on 710 ESPN. Miss an interview or Doc's weekly story? Check it out on the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. Also, Doc's advice to callers on their aches and pains. Just type Weekend Warrior in the Facebook search bar, and you'll see Doc's picture in the listings. And thanks for checking out the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. Hey, it's Mace. You know, there is no better way to start your Saturday than with Dr. Clapper and the Weekend Warrior Show, 7 to 9 a.m. Saturday mornings. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. With tinted windows. Can you imagine? Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. While I'm in Italy. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. I don't even care. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. Last segment because there's a Laker game coming, and that's why we're blessed to have the great Michael Thompson in the studio with me, learning about life. Yeah. And I'm trying to... So, Michael Thompson, in your beautiful career, which was gigantic on every level... I had a blessed career, man. I think about it every day. And a blessed childhood and blessed parents and and, and upbringing, and you're a blessed father to... But there's one thing you did not train for that you've had to acquire, and I'm here to say, not just because you're sitting in front of me, I, I, I enjoy your commentary so much. Why? You know why? Because it's not trained. Mm-hmm. You did not go to school to be a broadcaster, correct? Out of flunked. Right. They would have told you, you need to be in this box. Yep. Thank God they didn't get to pollute your style, your technique. Same thing for me. I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I'm not supposed to be on the radio. I have no idea what I'm doing. And yet, you listen to this show, 
you're going to hear me compare Dick Butkus to Michelangelo because they both hit things with yeah, precision. That's right. You know what I yeah. mean? Because the, the perspective that I have is so different. So I've been highlighting who inspired me and taught me without going to school how to interview people. So I want to play a soundbite for you of Vin Scully interviewing Sandy Koufax. It, it, I just, you know, Michelangelo's dead 500 years. I can't talk to him, but I got you right in front of me, so I can't wait. I had a professor, Dr. Ranawat, teach me, the eyes don't see what the mind doesn't know. I want to take advantage of your ears, that your ears teach me what my mind doesn't know. So listen to Sandy Koufax being interviewed by Vin Scully. Most veteran newspaper men around the ballpark were watching to see when you and Drysdale arrived which of the two had already shaved because it's uh-huh. traditional that the pitcher with the beard is going to pitch. But you and Drysdale both came in unshaven. When did you find out you were going to pitch today? Well, I found out when we got here. That's why neither of us were shaved. Well, you didn't know until you <laughs> no, got here? No, Now tell me when you found out. Was it in front of the entire club? Yeah. Did the manager go over or what? Yeah, Walt had a meeting and... Uh, he said that he thought he'd like to start the left-hander, and uh, he had a reason for it. He said, if I have to make a switch, I'd rather go left-right-left, talking about Paranowski as his last man, if he had to make two moves, then start the right-hander and go left-left. You don't, uh, you don't change their lineup any when you do that. This is Vince Scully observing. You guys were clean-shaven. When did you find out? And then the follow-up question. Did the manager take you off to the side, this personal decision of who's going to pitch tonight, you or Drysdale, or did he do it in front of the whole team? It, this is a Michael Thompson kind of question. Yeah, notice little, little quirky things. Let me ask you a question, since we only got a few minutes. Jeannie Buss made her all-time Lakers five, favorite five of all time. John Ireland's done his. He included Chick Hearn on his top five Lakers of all time. Let's say... My top five Lakers of all time, regardless of playing or front office or whatever position, right, for the Lakers. My top five Lakers of all time for as far as influence and impact on this franchise. Kobe, Magic, Kareem. Those are the three players, right? Yep. And then my other two, of course, are the two Jerry's, Buss and West, because those two built the dynasty. Who's your, top, who's your most f- five influential Lakers of all time? Court player or what, broadcaster, front office, whatever. Because I'm a, a lover of the history and the importance of, as a sculptor, I start with a block and you have to see the figure that's trapped in there, there's no doubt it's Elgin Baylor. Elgin Baylor? You have in to start, and you have to watch that black and white film, because it wasn't even in color, mm-hmm. of he was a man amongst boys, basically. Yeah. He, where did he that's get- That's one. The, Who's the other four? He, where did he get this creativity? So that's kind of where my mindset okay. is is who brought something beyond basketball? Elgin Baylor brought the art, the artistry to the game and was the first one. To me, the next one that I would have to say is Shaquille O'Neal mm-hmm. because Shaquille O'Neal taught us that it's joyful. You yeah. know, the oh, big, yeah. he, and he learned this from so Daryl Dawkins. Yeah. From Daryl Dawkins. Magic Johnson, the creativity combined with skill set to be able to play all five positions has to be next. So it's Elgin, it's Elgin Baylor, it's Magic Johnson, it's Shaquille O'Neal. And who's the last two? Kobe Bryant has got to be there. Yeah. And probably Ooh, the last... Whoa, this, oh, now, who we, who's going to be your fifth? <laughs> well, you got a lot to choose from here. To me, I don't think... As a man like you, Michael Thompson, who has taken skill set 
from playing to now going to a whole nother field, like me, an orthopedic surgeon on the radio. It's a whole nother career, a whole nother field. Doing it that well, there's no one better than Jerry Buss. Jerry Buss. That's my top five. That's your top five. Yeah, a lot of everybody's top five would be similar or very right, different. Right. So yeah, when, it's hard to argue about everybody's top five because they're all deserving. Whenever you meet a total stranger from now on, this is a clapper vision thing. You don't know them from a hole in the wall. You want to get up to speed of who this person is. I always ask him one question. Not what's your favorite, but what are your top five movies of all time? Oh. By the time you get they get to their third movie, yeah. you know everything about this really? person. Really? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. <laughs> so what's your top five? Uh, I love this Steve McQueen movie. Which one? Which is the greatest movie about revenge. Mm-hmm. It's called Nevada Smith. Have you ever seen that movie? No, I haven't seen it. Oh, you got to see that movie. Best ending in any movie I've ever seen, Body Heat. Remember Body Heat? Yeah, with, uh, what's the name? Uh, and Michael you, Douglas, The ending right? of that movie will blow your mind. Kathleen Turner, yeah. Uh, Kathleen Turner. Um, certainly The Graduate was great for me, but there's a foreign film that, that really did it for me. Being a poor kid from New York who had all these dreams to become an orthopedic surgeon. It's a, it's a movie called Swept Away by Lena Vertmuller. It's, uh, it's an Italian movie with English subtitles. It is like the greatest movie. So The Graduate, Swept Away, Nevada Smith, uh, Body Heat, and I'm a surfer. So the greatest Top five movie for me is Endless Summer. Man, you're, you're too deep. My top five movies of all time are Rocky, one, two, three, four, and five. No, I, no, I don't know. I've never, nobody's ever asked me that question before. And uh, I don't know. I'd have to have a tough time coming up with my top five. Yeah, something to think about. And By you, the way, when are you going to go to Portugal and ride the, ride the uh, you, you know those waves in Portugal? Yes. The 100-foot waves? Yes. When are you going to ride one of those yeah. suckers? Uh, yeah, I will ride it in my mind's eye. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's, what I, that's the surfing story I want to hear, Doc. <laughs> or go over to the pipeline off of Oahu. When are you going to ride those I've 40 done footers? I actually went no. once so I can sit here and say that I did that. What's the biggest wave you ever rode? Three times over my head. So that's 18 feet? Uh, well, probably 15 feet. What's that like? We have that, all that water behind you. you. Your heart literally jumps out of your chest. Wow. Yeah, you guys are crazy. You don't see no <laughs> brothers out there. <laughs> Ain't no black people doing there that. There are black there people. There are? Yes, and in the Bahamas. Right 20 yes. footers? Yes, they no. are. Thank God. We don't get 20 footers in the Bahamas. The biggest of ways we get in is like five, six Yeah, feet. you get hurricanes. Well, yeah, that's <laughs> Nobody out there riding those things. <laughs> the great Michael Thompson, thanks so much for being with me this morning, Michael. It's, what, it's such a pleasure. Warriors, next week... I leave you with Volari, by the way, the greatest song. Next week, we're going to talk about pressure points. You'll hear it in the promo. Until then, I'll see you on the radio.